You're listening to AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects of some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of the everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today. I'm Nicole Mandes, the executive producer of this podcast. Today, we have both Bonnie Evangelista and Mike Eider from the CDAO helping us interview and get expertise from our guest today, Igor Yablokov the CEO and founder of Prion. Uh, Bonnie, if you want to start us off, you can take it away. Thank you. Igor, I felt like you were such a big guest today. I brought some help for the interview. My colleague, Mike Eider, and he's the reason I have even any interaction with you or have met you and and things like that. So I I felt it was fitting to bring Mike into the conversation because uh, we're both fans and we both are kind of loosely following what you do. And I kind of want to get into right into that because you're very much a, a pioneer in, in AI, the AI field, and you're a tech founder, you're an entrepreneur, you're an inventor. You're kind of all the things I think the Department of Defense is looking for when we're looking for solutions. So could you tell us a little bit about how you went from inventor to starting your own tech company and, and some of the things, you know, what, why you are who you are in this field. You're very much a social authority in this field. Can you tell us a little bit about your first startup and, and how that's relevant to us today so people understand, you know, where, who you are? Yeah, and actually there was uh, an Eisenhower fellow um, Steve Welch, who ran for U.S. Senate up in Pennsylvania, and he actually penned a book called We're All Born Entrepreneurs. And so when you actually think about the, the latent ability to solve problems exists in, in all of us, because if you, if you think about us as a species, that's exactly what we do, right? You know, we collected as tribes and we solved, you know, existential things that we needed to do to, to service our communities. So the reason why I bring that up is, is it's not when you're in your 50s and your 40s and your 30s and your 20s that you start thinking about a journey of creating things that are useful to other folks. But think about when we were children and we were playing, playing with the little Legos, playing with toys, playing with trucks, playing with houses, playing with all of these different things. What we're doing is we're actually practicing for, for a, a future state. You know, for, for instance, you know, one of the uh, questions that I typically ask some of my staff members is as a child, tell me about some of the games that you were playing, right? And, and you know, uh, this one person uh, was talking about how they played Space Invaders and things like that. Some people, you know, read comic books and were inspired by that or science fiction. You know, I played things like SimCity, which is all resource allocation, you know, take, you know, building little firehouses and schools and things. And once in a while, Godzilla showed up. And what did you do? You just sighed, <laughs> got him on his way and then repaired the town and, and hopefully provided all the services that the synthetic uh, citizens required. But those were models for those of us that are now leading organizations later in life. And we didn't realize that if you actually connect the dots, these, these things that we became actually started a long, long time ago. And of course, as we're bumbling and stumbling through playtime, 
we're getting influences from our family members. You know, you know, for many of you, your your parents and grandparents, uh, you know, served in these different agencies and and fields as well. You know, you have the educators that you cross paths with, and I think all of us, you know, whether we're thinking about primary school, middle school, high school, even uh, undergraduate, we start thinking about the ones that really you know bent the curve, if you will, and made us really excited about a particular uh, field. And I think. When, when I think about my own journey, then the reason why this is this is an elliptical answer is the fact that I remember all those people, because when I answer your question and and you're attributing to me, but I was inspired by art, I was inspired by things that I read and, and those educators and family members and friends and places I visited, right, and the media that was consumed and things of that sort, that's what forms us as, uh, as individuals. So going through that, I had dual influences. In one hand, I had a grandfather who kept, who was a watchmaker and was always pushing engineering for us. On the other hand, I had my parents that were artists. And when you actually think about engineering and art colliding, that is fundamentally what artificial intelligence is, because it's a technology that has to interface with people. And so all through that upbringing, I was interested in the intersection, speech recognition, right? multimodal interfaces, you know, graphical user interfaces. I remember being in the high school cafeteria and sometimes sketching, you know, new types of interfaces and people will peer on my, uh, over my shoulder and say, what is that? Well, this is what people now use as Windows or, or Macintosh operating systems is what I was kind of sketching to figure out how people would actually uh, leverage those things when it used to be more command, uh, command prompts. And so I started my career as a research engineer at IBM. And then halfway through that career, I started leading an advanced team that was working in multimodal research, basically the study of how to blend graphical interfaces with speech recognition. And then me and my team started seeing, hey, there's this opportunity to build something else, an assistant that's all encompassing, that knows everything about everything. And it was too early for them. This was pre-Watson. And so we were trying to figure out where to put such things and why we would develop these things. And the early agenda was to create more accessible interfaces, you know, for senior citizens, for those uh, that were handicapped and the like. That's what their original inspiration was for these style of interfaces. But we were we kept pushing these things into vehicles because at least we knew that you needed a hands-free experience and the like. But then we're like, what happens? Because it takes forever you know, to actually deliver these things in cars, right? Many of us only buy a car once every five or 10 years. And so by the time you have that turnover, it's too long. But we started seeing all these mobile devices out there. And we started seeing these set-top boxes. And so as IBM was doing some joint work with Sony and Toshiba on the PlayStation 3, we started saying, hey, can we put a microphone on that thing so that you can talk to it and, and have anything appear? And everybody was laughing. They're like, there's no way people are going to put a microphone in their house. And, and then this is, this is working at IBM, right? Yeah, yeah. This was before the, the first startup. And then we went back and said, holy smokes, let's, uh, let's have this microphone. But instead of the speech engine being on device at the edge, we can put it in the cloud before it was called cloud. And they're like, oh, holy smokes, nobody's going to allow their speech patterns to go up, you know, in, into a remote resource. And then, and then we went back further and we said, holy smokes, if we can capture the voice there, send it to the cloud in order to safeguard the CPU and memory of the edge device, we can do something absolutely crazy, which is answer any question any human has about anything. Why is the sky blue? 
And by then, people were you you can imagine that it's it's practically like milk shooting out of their noses. And so, you know, when when you think about when you should found an organization, you kind of look around and you kind of envision that this should exist. The time is now. Mm-hmm. The technology, the mathematics, and the servers and the memory and all of these things are finally colliding to make something possible. And you kind of look around and saying, hmm, who's supposed to invent this electric car? Who's supposed to make this rocket ship, right? Who's supposed to make this new, you know, this new valve for a heart? Who's supposed to make, you know, this AI assistant? And us as, you know, creators, as entrepreneurs, as inventors and stuff like that, ask ourselves these questions. And when the idea for the AI assistant popped in our head, I kind of looked around and I'm like, uh-oh, I think I'm supposed <laughs> to do this thing because there's if, really- If not you, then who, right? Yeah, I, I think I'm supposed to work on this thing because- of everybody that I'm encountering in these different companies, this was before Google, you know, you know, got this religion or before, you know, uh, Siri, Apple Siri and the rest of them. And I'm like, oops, I think this is supposed to be me. And then that gives you the confidence to step out because so many people, whether it's veteran entrepreneurs, right, that leave the surface and think about, hey, how do I create these companies? I'm like, listen, it's not forced. It's almost like, you know, at times, you know, when you when you 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 first intersect with a romantic uh, partner, for God's sakes, people can explain to you how it feels, and you can read all the books that you want and listen to all the country songs that you want. But until it actually happens to you, you have no idea, right? Light bulbs just go off for artists, for writers, you know, for scientists, for engineers. They just go off, and then you are absolutely sure. And when people try to talk you out of it, they can't. Because, you know, it's actually from the inside out. You don't need any sort of analytics or reports or anything else to reinforce that decision. You actually fundamentally feel it in your, in your bones. And so that's what ended up happening. A year later, I stood up on a stage at the first ever TechCrunch uh, Disrupt Conference, and I flipped open a Razor flip phone, and I talked into a phone, got an answer, and crickets. Nobody knew what the heck I was talking about. They're like, why would you do this? Why would you have a mobile device that you can talk into and get instant answers from all sorts of web services when you can just open up a laptop and type in a Google search or buy something from from Amazon? What they didn't know is we were already secretly working with Apple on a prototype of the iPhone. That's how early uh, Apple was looking at. You know, obviously they're very well versed in user experiences and things of that sort. And so, you know, we turned it into a Skunksworks program. So we actually developed the world's first speech cloud. So we started, um, you know, mining uh, phone calls for uh, for certain marketing companies. We were converting people's voicemails into the text. And then when I was raising uh, a next round of financing, that's when, uh, you know, Google, Amazon, uh, Nuance, and several others jumped tracks uh, to acquire our company. Our R&D team wanted to go to Amazon because there was no existing AI team. It was going to be a blank slate opportunity. It was very, very hush-hush. They didn't want anybody to know that they were going to go into AI in a major way. And three or four years later, that's when Alexa was born. So I would very much call you a disruptor. Um, it, It sounds like I don't know, whatever setting you were in, whether it was at IBM, um, you they weren't ready for what you saw very clearly. What was that? What was that like? Like, because this is this is the challenge. Uh, one of the cultural bar- barriers we I think are struggling with 
uh, the Department of Defense, maybe even throughout the federal government. So like when there's disruptors like yourself who, who you can see it so clearly, right? And then the, the system just pushes back. Whereas Mike calls it the, the institutional inertia pushes back. <laughs> yeah, or the antibodies, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so so one of the things I espouse uh, is, is a respectful disruption in some ways, because the reason why the organizations have been successful in the past is because they were doing the right thing. And they only get in trouble when they continue doing the right thing too long. You know, that was you know, something that was, um, um, you know, guided to me uh, from a, another uh, fellow, Eisenhower fellow, Jeff Frazier men mentioned that. That's how uh, it, he used to uh, report to the Cisco CEO. And so when he sees these large scale institutions get in trouble, it's not because they're doing anything wrong. It's just that they were doing the right thing too long. If you think about an energy, energy company that's not investing in renewables, if you think Apple, if they didn't cannibalize themselves uh, by birthing the iPhone that was going to disrupt the iPod, right? If it wasn't, you know, Microsoft adapting itself to, hey, let's support more clients than just Windows-based clients, right? So you can do the right thing too long and not cannibalize yourself and not innovate and adapt and you get in trouble. And I think it's incumbent for people that are coming in and trying to, actually, what's curious about the word disruptive is some people assume that you're dishonoring the organization that you came from, but it's quite the opposite. You actually love it so much, you wanted to survive mm. and thrive, right? So these agencies that were coming from and the services that were coming from, we're not coming in to say, hey, that you're doing everything wrong. It's like, no, we want you to be relevant for the next hundred years, right? And as a result wow. of that, we need you to, you know, we need you to be pay attention to these technologies. To this new talent that's coming, to a more diverse thing, to these partnerships that 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 we can have, it's if you actually approach it from that loving uh, standpoint, then I think those antibodies that we uh, briefly adjusted about, you know, actually soothe themselves and say, okay, all right, you're trying to make sure that that we're relevant, right? So if you yeah, and that's that's a lot of of personality based people that are open to changing their antibodies. Like most, a lot of people are just like, nope, this is the way it is. I've done this for five years. I've done this for 10 years. I'm super good at, at it. But so you talk about the positive aspects of it, but how do you, how do you turn a negative of like, you're not changing me to, Hey, maybe we're going to die unless this works. This, this company is going to go out of business or we're going to fail unless you change. It's like, there was a book I read back in the day. It was something about my icebergs melting. I, it was by Dr. Carter Cotter from Harvard. And I, I forget the name of the book because details, I miss details. But anyway, it's like, you got all these personalities of like, no, the iceberg's fine. No, but we, I was just on the iceberg yesterday. This iceberg's going to fail. We're not fine now. Well, what's going on? Like all these different personality traits. And there's a bunch of books on that. You know, people fit into like stereotypes as you're, as you're like, oh, are you with it? Are you against it? Are you whatever? So how do you how do you get through all that to get people to listen to you or, you know, to, to do that positive disruption you talked about? Yeah, in some ways, it's reminding them that they used to be children, right? They, were, <laughs> they weren't always experts in those fields that they're, that they're well known for. They weren't birthed from their mothers knowing those things. So there was a period of time when they were, you know, uh, interns. There was a period of time where, where they were newbies and they needed mentorship in order to build even up uh, that capability and expertise, 
And I think it's it's basically telling them you can do it again because you know your country needs you to do that again. So embrace uh, your inner child for the for yeah, the nation. I think so. We we all have seen plenty of examples of organizations that haven't adapted. If let's let's pick an obvious example. Why is Russia faltering? Because they're still fighting the same way that they were doing it in the 80s. It's not fully integrated. Right? We're seeing this. So even laypersons can see, can see it. It's bared witness right in front of us. You know, it has to be a different way, right? And so, you know, folks that are training test pilots the same way that they were doing 20, 30 years ago, it's like, good luck with that. It's different. Everything has to change and adapt itself and, and, and get better over time. And again, if you're starting with the premise that you're trying to safeguard these organizations by doing that, then, then I think you end up in a good place. That's why it's a question of not just, you know, expertise, but it's also temperament as well. You know, when you show up to these organizations, it, it can't, and here's the weird thing. The reason why I'm, I'm very sensitive to the word disruption is because there's a couple different ways to do it, right? Elon Musk is disrupting Twitter right now, like a, like a, like a madman. Is doing it the right way? Is he is he respecting you know engineers that have been there for five or ten years that have lots of subject matter expertise in reducing risk in certain ways? Snowden disrupted things. Did he do it the right way? You know, did he did he say, hey, you know, I want our nation to become even stronger as a function of that? I'm going to use these checks and balance systems that we have to work, you know, through that. Or is he going to throw a Molotov cocktail at at, at uh, all these great people that have been doing their best? to safeguard, you know, our, our way of life as well. And so that's why, you know, when you think about, you know, that word in some ways, I think those antibodies, Mike and Bonnie, that you mentioned, you know, they come in because they're seeing poor examples of, of folks that are, that are changing things, disrespecting organizations and processes and things of that sort. And they automatically assume some futurist or disruptor is coming in and and uh going to break things unintentionally and that's not the right way to do it that's you know it's it's sometimes it can be revolutionary sometimes it's it's evolutionary you just need to do the right thing it's sort of like seeing occupy wall street folks okay you're sitting in a tent you know what i want you to do dust yourself off go to school put on a little suit go join goldman sachs and whatever condition you think that they're not doing properly you know you know for the american people you start changing it Hey, I'm sorry. That's going to take you ten or twenty years. Look at look at what we we all here collectively have to do. This isn't like an overnight thing, you know. I've had to do my thing over twenty years. I have a CTO that's been doing his thing, you know, in AI since 1981, for God's sakes, you know, for forty plus years. These aren't things that take overnight. And then people are like, "Well, I don't want to spend that time doing that." Well, then you're not passionate about that particular space. Go find the place where you fit. You know, if you don't want to spend, I want to spend 40 years doing this because I love this stuff. There's nothing, you know, more exciting to me than reducing the distance between knowledge and people doing critical things for, for our communities and our way of life. I, I don't mind that being put on my tombstone. And I think we have to challenge people when they're not willing to put that investment in adapting themselves or learning new things. It's like, hey, do you really care about this place? Do you really care about what you're doing? If not, that's okay. Then you're supposed to be something else. Maybe you're supposed to be an auto mechanic now. You're supposed to be a pastry chef. You're supposed to be something else because people that actually do care about that are going to be working this night and day, not because Elon Musk is sending a dumb email telling you that you have to overwork yourself, 
but you want to in the way that some, uh, you know, a sports person, an Olympian is going to do that and jump in a cold swimming pool and practice because they want to do that, not because it's uncomfortable. So I love that. I think that's a good way, a good segue, I'm sorry, to to pry on. So we, we left off with you didn't say it as much, but you essentially sold your tech, your tech to Amazon, right? And to build what is now Alexa. And you've started a second tech company called Pryon. Can you tell us a little bit about Pryon? Because that, that's what you're sure. speaking to. You know, you're, you're working towards solving that problem that's going to go on your tombstone, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Pryon was the code name to what became the Alexa speech engine. So we just ended up using that. So it's a little bit of a nerd uh, reference uh, there. <laughs> um, and, and just for those of you that are that might might uh, know some things in medicine, yes, it's it was named after the prion protein that causes mad cow disease, because in machine learning, uh, well, the way that that disease happens is unfortunately the cows are eating portions of deceased previous cows, and that's how they get that ailment. And in machine learning, the system actually eats its own output. Uh, that's so. awesome. So this is a very strange, obtuse uh, reasoning for, for, for why we're called what we are. So it was a code name, but the research team originally, uh, the previous research team uh, came up with uh, the code name as well. Now, what is Prime all about? Well, we're catching our own football. So we know that as you have the next generation of, of technologists and business and organizational leaders, you know, come into the fold for these organizations that you now are currently leading, They've grown up with Siri. They've grown up with Alexa. They're growing up with Google Assistant. Why are they going to get put in front of a dysfunctional interface from General Dynamics or from SAP or from Salesforce or from any of these traditional uh, vendors? They're expecting to blurt something out, type something in, and get an instant answer in one second. They don't care about logging into resources. They're expecting, hey, I want to see that camera in Kazakhstan in 1.5 seconds. And I want to I want to identify everybody there. I want to know exactly what this object is. Or hey, I like this I like this shirt. Exactly. Tell me where to get it in one in one second. They're expecting these these style of interactions that are immediate, multimodal, right? And and so none of the enterprise software that we have has been architected that way. So we're catching our football. You know, we know that that transpired in the consumer tech world, right? And they typically de-risk these things as interaction methods. But now in order to bring these similar experiences to these more serious uh, organizations that we're a part of requires new forms of accuracy, scale, you know, security and speed, and they have to be purpose-built. You can't just bring Siri to work. <laughs> I know you can't bring a lot of devices into SCIFs and things of that sort, but you're not gonna- Well, you can, but you just Siri end up getting fired, so. Yeah, it's like hey, <laughs> it's a one-time thing. Yeah, hey Siri, where's Osama? Right, you know, you know that's not going to happen. The point is, these interfaces, there's going to be higher order expectations from the next generation that are uh, going into these uh, services, and we want that. We want more frictionless experiences, right? Because when we can answer these questions about anything in these organizations in one second. That frees people to do the things that are humans really good at, which is problem solving. We don't want them to spend hours hunting for, for documentation and answers and, and tribal knowledge. You know, when we have so many people retiring, how do we take all the things that they've learned over the course of 20, 30, 40 year careers 
and recorded in such a way that they can be leveraged by the next generation. Mike, as you called it, the, the high five problem, right? How do we you know, get that recorded so that they can leverage that so that they can build on top of that instead of constantly having to reset themselves because these are complex problems that they've been working on. So that's what we decided to tackle. And not only that, I don't wanna talk about a complex AI system that only some priesthood, some ivory tower data scientists can go in and, and, uh, and essentially leverage. I believe in, in democratization of these uh, style of technologies. Everybody should be able to leverage these types of capabilities. When you actually look at what happened when the information age was upon us, the folks, you know, everybody thought, you know, everybody was gonna lose their jobs with these computers that are coming into the workplace and that wasn't so. It was just the folks, the jobs that, uh, that did not figure out how to leverage computers in their workflows. And so AI is actually not coming for everybody's jobs. And I'm very precise about that. But the, the jobs and the people that haven't adapted themselves to figuring out how they can leverage AI as a force multiplier are going to be the ones that disrupt themselves. Now, we have a, a sense of responsibility then to say, hey, I got to meet you halfway. I have to create something that you can use. And then you have to meet me halfway by you know, adopting it and then figuring out how you, know, how you can bring certain use cases that, that, are, that are critical to you as well. It takes two to, uh, two to tango. And so that's important um, because here's, here's the curious thing. When you create a system that you can democratize then, what you're doing is you're freeing creativity and innovation. I've seen this in large-scale organizations that have adopted, uh, you know, some of our work, and it may be an intern that actually starts using it in a, in a, in an odd way, and they just start experimenting with it, and then they create a new product, completely new product. If you think about what's happened at Facebook, what happened, what's happened at Google, what's happened at Apple, sometimes it's accidental discoveries by one or two or three people experimenting and it turned into multi-billion dollar businesses for them. That can only happen when you actually reduce the frictionality of, of, of platforms and don't make it so difficult where, where you know, only a small subset of individuals have access to it. That, that's an interesting point because there's a competition between control and mm -hmm. freedom, right? So you got, you got folks that are like, we have, to, we have to be focused, we have to, let's, we can't have everybody just doing their own thing. And then you have other people that are just squirreling all over the place. Let's follow right. this shine. Let's follow this shiny. And so what you're talking about is sort of a, a, a controlled shiny, right? Enabling right. And enabling innovation. And that talks super easy, but it's super hard to do. How do you do that? Well, I think for any, look, think about us sitting in our homes, doing our work, creatively and innovating and yet we look outside the window and then and then the sanitation department comes practically you know on at the same time every week keeping us safe and clean and things of that sort so we can do the things that we want for these organizations to work you need a balance of both of those uh, constructs you need things that you can count on like a swiss watch but then you also need to have, you know, you know, certain individuals that are, you know, have their hands um, dipped in Play-Doh and you may have both, right? You know, and, and guess what? I'm not even saying that those folks that are performing, performing those critical functions, you know, for, for our cities 
you know, don't innovate themselves and challenge their organizations about better, better ways of doing even their own jobs as well. So it's a lot fuzzier than it appears. Yeah, it's kind of kind of the same thing. Right? I mean, it's, you know, we have, as humans, we have predictable patterns, and we have unpredictable patterns as well. And we, we deal with those contradictions every day. Right? Because in fact, when you actually inspect our minds, they operate more like quantum computers where we can do two contradictory things at the same time. So that's curious. If organizations that we're managing are just supersets of us as individual human beings, then it's okay for them to do contradictory things as well. And it's actually healthy. They can't just do, like you said, where it's Willy Wonka time where everybody's shooting in all directions. And it can't just be so fixed and rigid that, that there's no opportunities to essentially adapt and change and play and, and disrupt and things of that sort. It has to be kind of both, you know, but I think it, the reason why, you know, us as a nation, we're out innovating is because at least in a general sense, we kind of are figuring out that riddle more than, than certain other nations that are more homogeneous because they tend to fall into one pattern or they tend to fall into a more chaotic pattern. No, that, that's awesome. Like a, a soup with multiple ingredients tastes a lot better than a single soup. Yeah, but but it may have, but the reason why you'll go to drink this soup of one restaurant versus another is because they'll throw some special ingredient in there that you would have never thought. Yeah, and then sometimes those dudes, they say, this is our ingredient. We're not sharing with anybody. If you want it, you have to come to our place because that's how right. we make money, and, that, and you're, that's the reason. So, like, how do you get people to share the special ingredient of the soup? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, right? Because in the technology industry, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a confluence of open source assets, right, that the whole world is contributing to, but also proprietary bits uh, as well, right? And the reason why people do proprietary things is because, you know, think about it. As humans, we are simultaneously tribal. We're, we're, we're trying to get the rising tide to lift all boats, but we're also trying to do things as individuals as well, right? That's why at times, you know, we have our political system at each other's throats in some ways, because some people are slanted one way, some people are slanted another way. And they're both simultaneously right and wrong. You kind of have to have the balance of both. We are individuals, but we also belong in communities and we have to find equilibrium with that. It's sort of like um, uh, the famed economist that, that figured out Nash equilibrium and won a Nobel Prize um, uh, for that, right? The, the uh, protagonist of A Beautiful Mind, right? The Nash equilibrium says, you got to get exactly what you want, but it can't be at the detriment of the organization. So so you have to contribute to publishing papers and, and doing open source things. At the same time, it's also healthy, especially in a capitalistic society, that you're going to get certain rewards from, from plotting unique perspectives to solving certain things. But the reason why people want you to have those re rewards is because you're responsibly reinvesting them in the next version of, of that particular technology. And the next version, the next version, and they want you to have those resources in order to attract more scientists and engineers uh, to that. There is a reason why we want certain people building submarines, and they're going to have certain margins in them so they can build the next one and the next one and the next one, you know. And and there's a reason why we're not we're open sourcing certain things because we want the world 
to help us solve certain problems that are low risk for everybody to know how to solve those things. But there are certain things that are obviously classified where we want to have an advantage of, of us, only us knowing how to solve, you know, that particular risk or issue. That's normal. That's normal for commercial entities. That's normal for public sector entities. I'm going to ask, like, just, I feel like we're treading this water anyways. I'll say cultural barrier that this kind of talks to is, you know, you're talking about inspiration and invention at I'm going to say lower levels, you know, at the working level. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, at least in the government there, we have this top-down mandate, you know, rather than we have no balance between top-down mandates and bottoms-up invention, I would say. And so a lot of, so we, we have this hodgepodge, we don't have a unified idea on how to integrate or how, if we invent, how do we integrate into, you know, our our existing architecture and stuff like that. So from an AI perspective, I think it's really hard to even apply, like you, you brought up a really good point about like the next generation, their expectation is so much higher than uh, my generation, Mike's generation, your, you know, and because they're so used to commercial technology that far exceeds like what's available in the government. So like, I don't even know, you know, I, I now know that to be like technical debt and things of that nature. I don't even know how to close that cat, um, you know, that, that gap. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on like, if we're going to advance, iterate, even apply modern day AI, where do we even begin? Yeah. Well, uh, again, and before answering the technical, um, um, the technical thing, it's, you have political appointees that have to work in concert with folks that are career. You have new freshly minted officers that have to you know, respect the knowledge of NCOs, which certain foreign militaries don't have as a construct. And that's why they're failing on the, on the battlefield as well. So I don't, I don't think it has to be you know, uh, one way or another when we're talking about you know, bringing these you know, technologies to bear. I think what you're trying to do is have collisions be between, you know, people that are, have been doing these as careers, and then you're introducing them to technologies. The reason why, you know, we're solving it the way that we're doing is because we're bringing AI, but as an empty vessel that takes the personality of, of the stuff that has been authored and collected in, in the past and the tribal knowledge, and it just takes the things that, that people wanted to know and makes it a lot more efficient and, and more performant. So it's not disrupting things, it's actually elevating the things that the organization already knew. And I think one of the reasons then why people won't see that type of, of AI as alien and, and, and trying to disrupt their jobs is because it's actually promoting the ideas of the organization that may have had a lot more friction to diffuse all over the organization and people didn't get attribution. We didn't know who the subject matter experts were and things of that sort. I think well, people always want to feel valued. And if you can bring AIs to bear that elevates their value, you're going to have people adopting it hand over fist. You talked a little bit about attribution, right? So, so in any organization, you have your people that are that are hard charging, that want to do stuff, your people in the middle that are like, hey, I'm just trying to do my thing and contribute. Mm -hmm. And then you have those other people that are scared, right? Mm -hmm. They're scared because knowledge is power. They have the knowledge. And when something screws up, the attribution doesn't go to them because it's like, hey, it wasn't my fault. It's somebody else's. So mm -hmm. that attribution piece 
can be viewed to some as a as a wow you're going to open the commo you're you're going to we're going to see everything and there's just and in, in my career like i've taught i've experts a lot of experts just don't want to be wrong right they're they've, they've placed their reputation on this certain thing and they themselves know that well there's things i would have done but i just couldn't right and so they feel this inadequacy that they they couldn't get it perfect and then when some ai comes and it's going to see everything now now you're 20 years of like you've been the guy for this thing and everybody treats you as an expert you're going to be exposed in your own mind as a farce as a you didn't have it perfect and as we've been trying to to to, to work with ai in the in the dod and possibly in the in the civilian world it's like there are folks and this is personality driven and you probably I mean, you don't have the answer but it just I mean, there's just expressing it, it's like, how do you address those panicked people that are like, my stuff is not perfect, and AI is going to expose me for the 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 the, the fraud that I am. I mean, there's logisticians that do that. There's IT dudes that do it. There's like the you name the discipline, right? And there's that that guy who is who has or gal who has like, I'm the expert in this, but there's things that I I would change, but I just don't have the ability to change them. It's it's just it's just stopped. So long-winded question. And but anyway, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's why I keep circling back to temperament, right? It's in these organizations, right? Especially adaptive organizations, we are all float flawed beings that build organizations to try to smooth our flaws and back each other up. You know, there's things that I'm good at and things that I'm not so good at. And then I have another executive in the company. They're good at something else that hopefully, you know, fills in one of my weaknesses. And they have a, um, you know, they have their own weakness that hopefully I'm backing up as well. I think if we're building responsible organizations, we're not putting people in an agitated way. By the way, I don't even like the word expert. Why am I an expert? It's a point in time. It's like here's a snapshot. I just happen to have read something. That you know from MIT yesterday that that people today haven't uh, haven't read, and as a result, I have a one day advantage, and that's it. But then everybody else catches up, right? You know, I, I will tell you. I mean, for for folks that are top of their field, the split second before uh, before they pass away, they will tell you they were an expert in nothing, because the world is moving so quick. I mean, you can't even read every paper, every patent, every this, every that. So even the word expert for me is highly suspicious. I can tell you one of the things that immediately, um, you know, goes red alert with me is when somebody introduces themselves as a world's leading expert in X, Y, and Z. I'm like, how can that be? You know, show mm -hmm. me how, how you're able to do that because I can't, you know, I can't do that. I need dozens of people around me. And then uh, there's hundreds of people and thousands of people around me as well. We all know this one little piece and we're supposed to be working together, you know, Mike to a similar thing. When we make that soup, it's a stone soup parable. We can only bring one vegetable if we're lucky. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're bringing the salt, we're bringing the water, we're, we're making the pot, you know, we're building the spoon. So in those organizations, I think, again, I keep circling back to to the fact that the people that are mid-level and above at least have to have a sense of not just the experience and the talents that they need in these organizations. You're constantly you know, working with people to make them feel valued. 
you know, for what they know. And, and, and you know what? Fine. AI has exposed a risk, a poor process, uh, you know, a, a way that we shouldn't have not been tuning a piece of machinery or something else. What are you worried about if it exposed it? Now we just saved some guy's life, right? Yeah. Who cares? You know, I, you know, I hire up, you know, I, I pull people in this organization and I tell them if I'm not doing, here's, here's one way that I was recruiting executives, by the way, I said, if I'm walking down the hallway and you're walking in the opposite direction and I've done something grossly negligent, uh, fraudulent or things of that sort, do you have the chutzpah to actually punch me in the nose? That's what I need. That's how you don't have nonsense like FTX. Yeah. Where's, where's the checks and balances? Do you know why? You know, I need to be, you know, check that way as well, because I have to be a responsible steward for multiple stakeholders, investors, and, and you know, customers, partners, and things like that. Everything has to run, you know, with as good a governance as we know to do and audited and things of that sort. That's how we get entrusted with greater, you know, scale missions. And so if a leader saying that versus the opposite problem, where, where you have individuals now that are taking over, you know, certain social networking things and engineers are correcting or doing something else. And instead of saying, hey, that's interesting, you have five or 10 years experience in that, let me understand more about what you're telling me, they get fired. Mm -mm. That's not a healthy organization. That's a perfect way to go, to go into oblivion. And again, that's the brilliance of the services with respect to the officer ranks and the NCOs working together and being respectful of each other's uh, vantage points as well. That's brilliant, I have to say. You know, and, for, and by the way, if we're doing that in all the other organizations and agencies and stuff like that, that's not so bad. You know, I think because we look our, at ourselves in the mirror, we're trying to build such high-performant organizations. Here's what I've noticed with the economy. And I'm, and I'm going to connect this dots to your organizations. When the economy seems bad, it's actually better than it seems. When the economy appears good, it's actually worse than it appears. If you're critiquing your organizations for being dysfunctional, it's actually better than it is. It's just that you're, uh, you're such high achievers that you're critiquing it in some ways because you want it to be so much better and stuff like that. And the people that think that their organizations are ironclad and working great, you got problems. Mm. you know there's something wrong you have some hubris and stuff like that it's actually not as as watertight as you think it is you just buttoned it up you know like some sort of autocrat you know autocratic situation but that's the truth is probably not not what you think it is i don't know it, again it gets back to the psychology of these organizations but when we think about these technologies again if they're framed from a behavioral science standpoint, that what we're trying to do is reduce risk for the organization to survive and thrive and, and perform the service that it's intended to make. Who, who in their right mind is going to argue with that? Nobody rational can argue with that, right? You would think, or you would hope. Let me pull a thread there where you, you made me think of something where senior leaders, executive leaders, and things like that, at least from a, a government, especially DOD perspective, like they love planning. They love long-term planning. Um, I'm curious as, you know, you've, you've got, you've had, you're on your second mm -hmm. successful up. 
um, you're very much in, you know, in the tech industry, like what kind of planning are, are you looking two, three, five years out? Um, how, how are you planning um, in terms of like, whether it's commercialization of your AI technology or it's like getting your technology to market or, you know, what, whatever your business goals are and stuff like that, what does that look like for you? Yeah, and, and I think you have to think about it as co concentric circles in some way where, where the farthest out, there is a big fog of war, if you will. And then yeah. as it comes in to the end of the decade, I have a better sense. And then as things get into this quarter, I have a, you know, 2020 vision in some ways, despite the glasses. So here's what I would say. It's all of the above. I have to have a 20 year plan. And in fact, some of our investors asked, what does your 20 year plan look like? And we actually have a white paper that I can probably share with, um, uh, with you, uh, Bonnie and Mike at some point that looks far ahead for where these style of technologies would go. And we sometimes introduce that to different you know, agencies, different uh, clients and stuff like that. It's like, hey, directionally, this is what a performing organization that have these style of technologies is going to look like. And this is the, the types of capabilities that we have to birth, invent, challenge ourselves in order to get you to, to um, you know, that promised land, if you will. By the end of the decade, that's basically the things that we're kind of doing today, but at scale in these respective organizations. And then there's immediate things that, that are in, in front of our noses for the next three months or so that are owned by product management in terms of here's a timeline on these different capabilities, these engine improvements, these model improvements, these language improvements, um, you, you know, for the systems that are that we already have our fingertips on. So I think, you know, in these organizations, you're going to have people working in these different levels of uh, resolution. At the same time, guess what? Some emergency request comes in, even though we're kind of locked in for the things that we're doing over the next uh, over the next six months. We can move something out, change change priorities, and and snap something in over the course of the next year. You know, we may have a general a, a more general sense of what we're doing, but again, something major comes in, something gets removed, and something gets added in there. Maybe there's a piece of innovation that shows up on the world stage, like like Leibniz and uh, and uh, Newton inventing calculus almost at the same uh, time. And we have to take advantage of that in the same way that transformers you know, showed up in the AI scene or in 2012 neural networks, which by the way, were mathematics that were discovered a long time ago, but they weren't practical until, you know, these GPU resources can do. So there's probably mathematics from a hundred plus years ago, like MIT discovering uh, yesterday that couldn't be solved for a long period of time, but suddenly there's a breakthrough and now it kind of moves things forward, sort of like an avalanche, you know, and these, and so what that tells you is you got to have a plan, but did you know the Russians were invading? You got to have a plan. Did you know somebody's going to have this mathematical breakthrough? Hey, you got to have a plan, but hey, what if something crazy happens in quantum and everything starts unraveling? You know, where's your you know post quantum? What, what if a crypto routine gets blown blown up and now all these things are a risk? You have to change everything that you're doing because you have to assume everything's popped open and visible to the whole world. So sure, you can plan all you want, but we're also in the real world. You know, we envision having certain technologies, but guess what? Sometimes we're pleasantly surprised. We look at our iPhones, it's like, hey, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize they can actually do this today. 
electric cars. Hey, that's pretty cool. Hey, some of the stuff that's happening with renewables, that's pretty cool. The, the way you have to think about our organizations and technology in some ways, and this is what I tell people, you have to imagine it like a city center where at any period of time in our organizations, think about the people and technologies that are in it. Some are going to be gleaming skyscrapers that are LEED certified and they're far out, you know, ahead of the curve. And then you're going to have, you know, maybe buildings that were built in the last decade or two decades or three, right? Some are going to have asbestos in them. And then some are going to be dilapidated churches that were built 300 years ago. Technologies are that way. When you actually look inside platforms, AWS and the rest of them, there's stuff that's, that's far out and ahead of the curve. There's this middling stuff. And then there's stuff that's, uh, that's from yesteryear. Take that to humans as well. You're going to inspect your organizations and you're going to have certain people that are ahead of certain curves and seeing certain things. And then you're going to have, you know, folks that are the normal distribution curve that are running the organizations. And then you have certain people that are trying to pull you into things that are no longer um, uh, relevant. And so that's that's kind of what we experience on a on a on a day to day uh, basis. You have to plan. You have to plan, but know that it's all going to change and you have different resolutions of knowledge based on that. And you have to build organizations that are working in those on in those three different time periods. There are certain scientists that we have that aren't making anything that's going to be relevant in the next year. But we have to start now because of the long lead time associated with getting to that 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 innovation that that we want that could be two, three, four plus years away. That's super interesting. The the Department of Defense is built to bring order to chaos, right? Something bad's happening. You send in the military, you utilize this machine of the DOD to bring order to chaos. And when you are trying to bring order to chaos, the organization itself must have order, right? So, mm -hmm. so now you've got, you're trying to bring order and the, the, the organization has order and that lends itself to conformity and to, to all of those things. And we spoke to a couple of these things earlier the planning that Bonnie mentioned, right? So we're like, what's happening 10 years from now? What's the, what is the, the, the natural, you know, series of events that we predict are going to happen. And one of the things that when, when you're going and you're talking to folks that, that either know a little bit or, or not much about AI is like, Hey, I need AI to predict what's going to happen in five days. Right. I need to, is my plan going to work is uh if we go into a battle between this person and this person, who's going to win? Or how can we predict the economic downfall of a country? Whatever it is, like, how do you explain AI to a person like that who's like, hey, how does it how does it save the world so that they're not as scared of it? You know, and or when you're talking about you know an organization that plans all the time, this disruption to the plan where you just said, hey, you need to plan, but you, you've got to respond to it. So how do you how do you shape that conversation? Well, chaos is the natural state of the universe, right? It's going towards that. So I would say even the even order is an illusion, right? The reason why we create organizations to have a to have a sense of order is because as human beings, we're opting into that in order to be able to control these these systems in a human scale. So we create laws and governance and procedures and policies and things like that. And we all vote 
on these things and say, yeah, we're going to follow these things because otherwise we would have chaos and we wouldn't have predictability and determinism when we need the aircraft carrier to be in a certain place or we need a submarine to be in a certain place or we need to build, you know, have a supply chain so that there's food there for the people that are that are counting on it. So we are creating these these artificial constructs by design in order to deal with a human scale. Now, how does that intersect with AI? Well, the AI is going to task the submarine and say, you should be there. And the aircraft carrier needs to be over there. And I need to stage the, the, the uh, special forces team over there, even though there's nothing happening there. But I'm predicting something you know, is going to happen because of certain other signals that it's getting. And it's and it's beyond human comprehension for why it's done certain things. And then look, I know a lot of us are thinking about, well, how, you know, can we have an explainable AI? Well, why am I overrated? And I eat chocolate eclairs at times. Because they're know, good. They taste good. I know. Yeah, but but you know, I should know better, right? I'm a smart cookie. So so why is this happening? So the, the point is, you know, humans can't even explain their own behaviors. And yet, you know, people are showing up saying, hey, you know, have your, you know, AI explain itself. I'm like, well, why don't you explain why you did that that last week? And did you really need those three shots? You know, we kind of need you to have your faculties and, and uh, you know, we don't want your brain cells, you know, to perish. You're your important member of our organization. I don't know why I did that. It just seemed like the right decision at the time. Well, that's why the AI did that. It seemed like the right decision at that time for the signals that it had. Okay, why are you trying to make it do more than you can do yourself? Now, don't be afraid of the AI. Conversely, you're like, well, wait a minute, it can't explain itself. Why can't I be afraid of it? Because that would be like you being afraid of your own children. You're the one training it, aren't you? Right? It's you're, our fault. Yeah, you're training it, you're tending to it, you're, you're adapting it, you're mentoring it, you're sending the data, you're connecting all the signals that are going in there. What you don't trust your own children at a certain point in time, they're their own beings and they're out in the world. They're, you know, they're doing their thing. All you could do is get them education and mentorship and things of that sort. But at a certain point in time, they're out on their own doing their things. And you're like, well, no, you know, that's a child versus an AI and AI is going to affect more. Yeah, but that child of yours is going to have a big job one day big responsibilities and they can affect a million lives, a billion lives at some point. You can't say that this AI is affecting a billion lives and that child is not. It's the same, it's the same thing that we're doing. So I would say, don't be afraid of something that you're, you're creating, but you have to be careful as uh, what you're putting in. By the way, the reason why I like working in AI is I know what the off button is, you know, you can't always yeah. do that. A, a teenager that's misbehaving you know there is no off button for that so at least there's an off button for that but again these these things are are going to embrace chaos and do certain things that don't make any sense but it's going to get us the outcome uh, that we want which is more efficient planning resources put in certain places reduction of energy use right uh, you know it's you know think about ups using you know, an AI style system to, to reduce left turns. Think about Delta Airlines using AI to, to plot courses that, that have less turbulence. Again, also to, you know, use less uh, energy as well and, and to make more comfortable environments for, um, you know, for their customers. We're, we're so much, as Bezos says, first pitch, first ending for this stuff. You know, we, we're, we're going to look at this, you know, 10 years from now, even hearing, you know, folks like us on this podcast, 
and we're all going to appear Amish. You know, things are going to just move so quickly, right, in terms of adapting and innovations and things like that. Um, but, you know, there's going to be certain nuggets where we have predicted certain things, just like I can go back and look at what we were doing in 2002 and what we were doing in 2012 and look at what we're doing in 2022. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't call that one uh, correctly. But holy smokes, I can actually take take this thing and actually plot it forward 10 years or 20 years. And I'm like, hey, we were onto something that really was the right path. At the same time, you can look backwards and you don't see the critical path, though. Right, because we all try to filter things and say we need to work on this, but not work on that. Nope. It's all entangled together. It's all entangled together. Experimentation is all entangled together. You cannot take one thing out and think that you're going to get a more efficient path. You know, mm. that's that's like Edison saying, Hey, I don't want to do 10,000 light bulbs. I just want to do a hundred. Good luck. You can. You have to play with the materials. You have to you have to do certain things. People try to take shortcuts, but like Gary Shandling said, there's no shortcut to comedy and there's no shortcut to innovation. That's why, again, I connect the dot. You have to love what you're doing because then it, it won't stress you out that it's going to take a while to get there. But yeah. ultimately, these are chaotic systems, but there is an underlying order to them but it's not human scale for us to discover what that order is. It's sort of like leveraging AI to figure out, you know, what the weather patterns are going to be. There is a sense of order under there, but us as individuals can't see it. What we can do is create AIs that can operate at a greater than human scale that are going to be helping us as tools see far beyond our own noses. Do you think, or how do we get more inventors, experimenters, entrepreneur-like-minded people into, you know, the DOD setting? Because I, I I do think there's a, a lack of uh, what you're talking about. Like, there's just not an, I think there's some of it. There's, like, groups of individuals, like, trying to do these things. Because to your point earlier, they, they just care so much, and they want to see things last, and they want to see things work well. Um, and, and, I mean, just from individuals I talk to, they just, they just, they either want to win or they, you know, they don't want to see people die. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's definitely just a, what, what could we be doing more of, I guess, to attract more of that in this space? Um, I, I think, I don't even know how I got lucky enough to even cross paths with the likes of you. I think there's there's a resilience there for people wanting to do business with the government. That, that is, there's a huge barrier um, that we've got to break through. Yeah, but but I wouldn't even necessarily describe it as a barrier, right? I think I think people have to earn earn their keep. They have to keep doing what they're doing, and sooner or later, you know, organizations are going to discover them and say, "Hey, now you're ready to help." this next, you know, this next evolution of our organization, but it may have taken 5, 10, 15, 20 years worth of efforts, you know, before that chance existed. So I wouldn't necessarily call it as a barrier, because that assumes that there's a wall in your organization, CDO, AO, or otherwise, where you're not welcoming to work with folks. But at the same time, there's a scarcity of resources that you have, and you're expecting certain things to be at a certain level of maturity. Now, now, it's not practical for you to say it's ultimately mature because these things are tip of the spear. 
I mean, you're you're getting farm right. to table AI. I mean, so the soon as soon as it's ready or almost ready, you're picking that green tomato or that green banana, and you're bringing it in, saying before it actually does, you know, get ripe, we want to have an early mover advantage with this capability because we see, you know, where it would fit. Now, you know, recently. Yeah there was an announcement of an added additive manufacturing, right? The ability to, to essentially 3D print metals and objects on, on uh, I think one of those mini carriers, right? Yeah, but 10, 15 years ago, people were printing out little plastic toys. Right? They were playing with that type of stuff. And now you have this system that's probably one of the first of its kind. And they'll be far more advanced if you think about forward operating bases that are gonna be able to print almost any anything that um, the troops are going to need on the frontline situation. The reason why uh, forces win is because of supply chains, right? And if you can do that in, 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 uh, in uh, es essentially uh, disconnected modes, if you will, then we're always going to win because whatever they're going to need, they can just print, you know, print out. But that also meant a long time ago, people were starting with, you know, printing out little blocks and stuff like that. Same thing with AI, you know, um, you know, 20 years ago, I think we put a little speech recognition exhibit in Epcot Center just for children to stumble and bumble in front of it to talk and see their words appear on the screen. So before, you know, we can do big things, we have to have playtime, we have to introduce people to things. And I think that's, that's one of the things that CDAO is going to do well is by convening people towards those collisions and then just kind of trust that the right thing will happen at the right time. You can't force innovation to happen, you know, any, any more than you can inspire a writer, you know, to develop a story or a painter to pick up a brush and do certain things. Sooner or later, they'll get what they need, but it happens by colliding over and over again and saying, hey, I have this problem. I have this risk. I have this use case. I have this. I have that. And I'm like, well, I'm building this. Why are you building this? Well, because I'm trying to make it easier for people to do this. And I'm trying to you know, get this type of content in there and I'm trying to unravel that and I want these languages and sooner or later. And then finally, those two things meet where you have need and capability. But, you know, this side doesn't know this side exists and this side doesn't know this side exists. So that's, you know, one of the, you know, critical functions of this team. And look, it's all over academia. It's all over the private sector, big businesses and small businesses and national labs are all doing these things. And it's, it's again, not human scale for us to know all these things that are happening, and that doesn't even include international partners and their national labs and their commercial entities and their, you know, you know, small businesses and startups and things of that sort and, and their academic institutions. So we have to cast a wide net because we don't know where these things are going to come from. By the way, it, it may have nothing to do with technology. It could be an algorithmic mathematical discovery somewhere that nobody realizes actually cr creates more efficient microprocessors, right? right. Or, or solves some security condition because they didn't realize that it was gonna be used for something else. So that actually means we even have to be interested in what the third world is doing with certain types of capabilities. You talked a little bit, I wanna key in on a couple of things you just talked talk about security. Mm -hmm. So if AI is predicting and telling you know this you, you mentioned the submarine needs to go here this mm -hmm. aircraft needs to go there and the data that it's looking at is formulating that decision how do you mitigate the risk for in, in any kind of chess game you play mm -hmm. single dimension and someone's going to play 
three-dimensional, right? And then some people are gonna play three-dimensional chess and we're gonna move it and then we're gonna spin it around. So there's always levels, right? So if I'm mm -hmm. if I know there's a data source or data sources that are going in to 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 tell my AI to predict X, how do you keep from poisoning or having someone, how do you secure it? How do you mitigate from it if these you know decisions are going to be made off of this ai how do you safeguard that yeah so that's that's a great question so think about it ai in a glorified way is just tasks that humans already do just in a more automated way right i mean you and i can can look at a table full of pictures and say hey let's sort the the dogs from the cats from the from the flowers from this from that or we can or we can leverage an AI to automatically do that for us and cluster these things uh, to it. So it's just doing what we, you and I would have normally done in a more automated way. Somebody's manually tasking these things now. Are we asking the same questions? Why did you send it there? Right? Mm -hmm. So, so, and what was the influence for your decision to put it there in the Mediterranean versus, you know, in Iberian versus this place versus that place? You know, there's a reason why we're doing certain things. And I think we have to have a system that can explain itself as best as it can, but it won't at, at a certain point in time, if we keep scratching the surface, asking a human why they did certain things, you'll eventually reach the, you know, the center of the Tootsie Roll pop where they'll tell you, I'm not really sure it was a sense of intuition. Right. Right. And, and it's intuition, just nothing more than subconscious pattern recognition. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, it just feels right, and 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 then we typically stop asking questions. Then we start saying, "Hmm, you're considered a subject matter expert. You have decades of experience. All of your previous attempts at that task have been successful, and we have a high degree of confidence that even though there's a fog of war associated, and we can't just get a precise answer." Think about it all. The majority of decisions that humans beings make, we never have 100% intelligence for the course of action in anything. Hey, should I take this medicine or not? We read all the side effects. We do that. We talk to our, you know, physicians, right? You know, should I eat this or that? Should I eat the carrot? Should I eat, you know, the, the piece of broccoli? Mm, I'm not sure. For some reason, I'm mm -hmm. craving this vegetable versus, versus that vegetable. Why? You know, there's a certain nutrient deficiency that you have, but you don't really ultimately know, you know, exactly why you're doing certain things. In these organizations, you know, we never have a complete image, you know, and, and again, we're trying to ascribe some godlike power to AI that it's going to tell mm -hmm. us with 100% certainty why it's doing certain things when no human being on earth can do that. And maybe just because people are looking for certainty in things that they're uncertain about. Yeah, they're, they're right. never gonna have that, just like, you know, with these electric cars crashing into people. It's like, uh, you know, you know what I turn, turn on the, uh, most AI people that I know, you know, that have Teslas don't have the auto, autopilot on. You know, they don't it, trust it. No, it's just like most social media executives, they don't let their children use social media, right? Most tobacco executives weren't letting their family smoke. Take that as a hint. It's like, well, why don't you have that if you believe in AI? Because I don't want to harm somebody. I don't like, like the sensors that are being used. I don't think the processor can still do things. And just because somebody's trying to shove it down our throat doesn't make it right. 
you know, they're, 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 what they're doing is they're going through their 10,000 light bulbs, right? But then at some, at one point, do you try to adopt, you know, these, these technologies, you know, it's harder, you know, Mike, as you mentioned before in these services, right? There's, we're trying to affect the minimum collateral damage on all sides, you know, and that's not always possible. But then if the AI does something like that, then it's like, did we harm more or did we help more? And you don't always have the answer to that. And of course, then politicians get, get thrown in the fray, you know, because they get painted, you know, with the decision as well. And, you know, it's, it's curious. This is why when you look at, you know, science fiction, you know, I remember giving a talk to, um, you know, different students in universities and high schools and stuff like that. And I showed them a whole sequence of films that were addressing science fiction. And I kid you not, probably nine out of 10 were showing a negative view. It was HAL, it was the Terminator, it was even Dune, right? Because they, they uh, didn't allow AI, you know, in their universe anymore. So you have all these negative depictions and maybe there's one positive depiction with the little Knight Rider car helping his little buddy driver. And that's it. Everything else was negative, right? So I think, mm. I think people still don't understand, you know, what it is and how it helps. And I, and I think they'll trust it more when they have more examples of it in their real life. And right now, the only examples of it that they have are, are these uh, Alexis, you know, but curiously, here's, here's where I elbow the Amazon team. How much do you expect the entire force of American government to, to trust AI when Alexa can't always properly turn a light bulb on and off? Right. So no, no wonder people are resisting these things. Right. They need to see more success patterns, just like when we talked about tasking that submarine, that individual that's doing it has a success pattern. Right. So it's going to be a period of time before people, uh, you know, see a generation uh, of, of success patterns before they trust it with more important missions. So the so let's take that a little bit. So success pattern, success patterns on prior things doesn't necessitate necessarily lead to future success though so it's like if it's if it's you're basing it on and this is getting a little philosophical but if you're basing it on historical hey you were able to do that thing situations change and so how will you know that it that that's the you know if you're basing all your your uh, your confidence in past performance when the situation changes. How do you trust the AI to? Uh, and I'm asking hard questions, no, then, no. You know, but but they're juicy. So, well, and again, getting uh, because I want to roll it back to the human that that previously was tasked with that with that mission. The reason why they were successful in the past is because you can point to the they're adapting to different situations, right? And Fair. so and 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 so here's what I would say. What's going to happen, you know, in the early stages of these AIs is these things are going to be our co-pilots co with us, but we're still the PIC, the pilot in command, right? And they're co-pilots and they're watching, waiting, getting mentored and things, things like that. You know, one of the things that's really curious that I've noticed as people adopt um, uh, AIs is uh, they're expecting it to work magic inside of two weeks, inside of two months, inside of two years. And I'm like, you know, you as a human being took 30, 40 years to do that. Yeah. That's awesome. Right? 
All right. So you're, yeah, you want me to read these things and crack these things open and understand these things. That's fine. But it took you as a child, you know, two, three, four years to do that. So you know what? That's not so bad. Well, here's what I tell people. I'm like, adopt it. And then, and then I'll show you the level of accuracy that you'll have a month later, a quarter later, or a year later, and it will adapt quickly. But you have to start at some point. See, what happens a lot when people evaluate AIs is they open it up out of the box and they're expecting it to be, you know, this, this little toy robot that immediately scurries across the road and does all of these fun things like, like a Japanese toy. And it's like, why don't you use it a little bit and see what happens a month from now, you know, and, and three months from now, and then a year from now, it will adapt. You will adapt. It will learn. You'll add more content. You'll do certain things. There'll be nipping and tucking that will happen as well. But so many people, again, are trying to do an out-of-box experience with this, forgetting that it's a learning and growing system as well, just like just like humans uh, are. So that's uh, that's something that, and again, I think as you have this next generation that's growing up with this, that has seen, hey, I talked to Siri when I was five. And then I talked to Siri when I was 10. And then I talked to Siri when I was 15. And then I talked to Siri when I was 20. And, and it ended up doing more things as I was growing as well. And more applications and it covered more domains. That's what I'm expecting to see when I come into the enterprise. Yes, I'm going to get access to this AI, but I'm going to work in tandem with it. And a year later, it's going to do this. Think about this way. When we get hired into the organizations that, that we're all performing in, we get paid the same amount on day one and day 365 for the most part. But how performant were we on day one? We didn't know when it, where anything was, right? We had to go through training. We had to be mentored. You know, you know, we had, you know, teams that were working with us as well. And then several months in, several weeks in, you know, a year in, we're still getting paid the same amount yet we're far more capable and we can, you know, we're starting to get considered considered leaders in our own right as well. And again, we assume that technology is a light bulb. Just flicks on right. and suddenly, you know, knows what one of us knows after working there for a year. We're far more forgiving of human intelligence than we are machine intelligence. That's a super way of explaining it is that as the AI learns more and figures out more and day one, it's, you know, yeah, day two, it's, you know, infinitely better or, you know, exponentially better or linearly, whatever, but it's better. Um, so as you were growing up getting better, was there any type of like books that you read or, and lately is there podcasts you listen to, or where do you get your, where, where would you advise somebody who wants to be like, I want to think like Igor, where would you, where would you point them? Or is, is there any is there any like your favorite source of information or something that was just super awesome for you? Yeah, here. Well, I'll, I'll work backwards from what you just said. You don't want to think like me, right? I want I want you to think like you, right? I mean, we we're all working collectively as a team, and I have a role that I'm performing, right? And and you have a Fair. role that you're performing, and Bonnie's has a role that she's performing as 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 well. You know, th think about it, you know, us as entrepreneurs, inventors and stuff like that, we end up idolizing, you know, Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs and all of these individuals. And we're like, oh, my God, I want to wear a turtleneck, a black turtleneck, and I want to go give these speeches and I want to make Macs and I want to make iPhones and things like that. And then at a certain point in time, I think, you know, you know, when we're in our 30s and 40s, we finally realize, holy smokes, I actually I can just be myself. 
and that has value and I've learned certain things and I'm contributing to the team and organizations and things of that sort, you can tell, right? Again, I'm talking about the NCOs and, and, and things of that sort. Once, once you become mid-career and more mature in, in, in the understanding of where you fit, there's a satiation and an excitement because you know your value. I keep going back to that thing. You know your value. For me, I remember, um, you know, because uh, my artist parents kept throwing curveballs at us. They're like, Igor, you're going to learn how to paint. You're going to learn violin. You're going to learn piano. You're going to learn how to dance. You're going to go learn languages and history. And now you're going to learn computers. And one summer they're like, um, you know, you're going to be a lumberjack. You're going to learn how to how to sail. And now you're going to go to this monetary uh, monastery. You're going to learn how to paint, um, you know, icons. And you're going to work the farm. And you're going to work on tractors. And you're going to bale hay. And at night, there's no electricity there. And I I'm, I'm by candlelight and I open up this book and it blows my mind. And it's Isaac Asimov's foundation, right? And in there, it was all about how mathematics can predict the future, right? And, and how that organization was trying to safeguard you know, their, their civilization as well. And I'm like, oh, holy smokes, what higher calling can, it, can there be to be a mathematician, a scientist, an inventor, a, uh, you know, in any of our fields that we're in, and we're safeguarding our communities by leveraging some form of technology that's hard to explain and things of that sort, and we're creating these organizations to do that. And I remember that just, you know, you know, being su such a big part of my formation. And that's why I, I early on, you know, even our discussion talked about there's a natural confluence between art and, and the sciences that we're working on. They're inspiring each other. I remember giving a talk in the last um, uh, startup in Hollywood, and there was a whole room. It was uh, me, I think Nathan Eagle from uh, MIT, who was working on eigenbehaviors and the, and the fellow who founded uh, Evernote. And it was a room full of writers, directors, and producers of these uh, films that, that many of you would know. And, um, and they're there to listen to us to be inspired for their future works so that it would have appeared like they saw what was coming. But then the gift to get was like, hey, and we're actually going to make the audience ready for some of your inventions as well as we write them in there, because then people are going to expect, oh, that's a natural way that America is going to appear in 2025 and 2030 and 2015 and things of that sort. So there's actually this, this, um, you know, influence between art and science in some ways where they're mutually inspiring each other. So to your point, Mike, poetry, classical music, country music, everything, everything that excites a human mind and inspires us to create, adapt, and, and work with, with other people is, is, is worth it. And it's really hard for me to tell you you know, listen to this podcast or read this book or listen to this song or, or go to this museum when each one of us, for whatever reason, we're going to get drawn to different things. And that's okay. You're, you're all going to have your own individual paths, you know, to discovering different works. And it has to be completely different than the path that I've taken or Bonnie's taken or Mike's taken. Because then when you come in and work in our teams, we want you to throw those curveballs. Hey, you know what? I actually read this book and it talked about this civilization that did X, Y, and Z, and they solved this problem this way. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, I read this, you know, book where this psychologist is talking about this other way of framing, you know, you know, um, 
uh, adversarial relationships, which I think could be relevant to to solving this this um, this uh, Go problem that we have at DeepMind. Oh, that's interesting, right? And so, so that's why I think it's really hard. I mean, there's there's fun things that 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 describe the industry in general. Uh, obviously, Eric Schmidt wrote a recent book with Kissinger on AI. That's that's been interesting. Uh, Michael Kanan, I think some of you may have worked with him in the past for T minus AI. That's a really nice, you know, primer on on AI industry. You know, the AI superpowers, of course, Kai Fu Lee's perspective. I competed with him when he was at Microsoft, and uh, uh, and I was at IBM. He was doing a closed source version of these technologies. We were espousing an open source and open standards way of of doing things. So the stuff that we hear out there. These are human beings, you know, creating challenges or solving certain things. These aren't, you know, some sort of Greek myths. Mm -hmm. And what's really curious when we look around um, our communities, we see buildings, we see airplanes, we see ships, we see MRI machines and everything else, the clothing that we wear, the food that we're going to about to eat later on today. Some human being had a part in all of that. And as a system, it sort of works as a supply chain in order to provide these things for us as well. What we're tasked with is for that issue that we have to solve. If we can reduce friction for the people that are creating these constructs around us as well, that's a pretty good you know, place to be. So Mike, to the challenges that you talked about, hey, you know, what happens if you're trying to disrupt and these, these people in the organization, again, I consistently reinforce, we are trying to improve things. We're trying to safeguard things. We're trying to reduce risk. There's no other reason we're showing up. It's not like, you know, you were painting things purple and I want to come in and paint things orange just to change things. No, it serves a rational purpose for why we're, you know, we're trying to bring, you know, new thinking, new technologies, new capabilities, new processes. And as long as you can, you connect the dots to the rational reason for why something is changing then you know most most uh, folks you know should embrace it embrace it and extend it and then you have to let them come in and participate like hey you, you're showing up with like hey i know you were making this sandwich but now we're going to make this stone soup and i dropped the rock in there that's like well i was going to put my tomato in there i'm like well, well try it in the soup see what happens you know you make them part of it part of the journey and you make them feel a sense of ownership over that as well again we keep we're, we think that we're talking about AI, but we keep coming back to psychology. And the reason for that is AI just does what human does at scale. That's why we really have to understand ourselves as communities, as, as individuals, before we can talk about the technology. Who cares what it's transformers? After that, it'll be conformers. After that, it'll be something else. It doesn't matter. These things are just expressions of us. What's an email? You know, it's what you used to do writing, you know, taking a pen and paper and writing it to somebody. That's all. You know, what is, you know, what is phishing? Yeah. It's fraud, you know, by, by another form. It's what bandits used to do in the past, just with different technology. It's all the same thing, you know, when you actually scratch the surface. Yeah, I think it, it's kind of, we're coming full circle to one of your original points about just us as humans are, are, we all have the capacity to problem solve. And I, and I think that's what you're describing where it's, uh, you know, my capacity to problem solve is different than Mike's. And that's kind of the beauty of maybe our relationship because he sees things differently than I do. 
And I think, you know, when you bring an AI element into that, um, it's reducing, I like the, your term, reducing the friction to allow whatever, just using Mike and I as an example, re reducing whatever our goal is so that we can get to the goal faster, better, cheaper, right? Whatever, whatever the goal is, I think it's a prudent point. Yeah, and I'm, I'm more optimistic than not. You know, I know it's hard with the new cycles being what they are <laughs> to think that everything's going haywire. And, and, here, and here's my evidence for that. When any one of us goes um, to, uh, you know, seaside, you know, and witnesses a beach, there's far more children building sandcastles than kicking them. And that's it. That's it. So sure, there's going to be knuckleheads out there that are going to be doing certain things and, and you know, tearing certain things down and, and um, you know, working at cross purposes and things of that sort. But there's far fewer of them than people that want to do things for themselves and their communities and, you know, you know, to create jobs, to create educational opportunities, to have economic mobility for folks. That's what the majority of people want. Doesn't matter what flags behind them. That's what the majority of people want. You know, it's just, you know, there's a cross section of individuals, a smaller subset of individuals that have their own, you know, cross purposes. And, you know, maybe some are just out and out dysfunctional, um, but there's far future of them. And that's why I think, you know, approaching these topics in a very diplomatic way that most of us are practically wanting to do the same thing, no matter where we are, is, is a healthy approach. Right and a and a rational uh, approach, um, but you know there's that's the purpose of innovation, right? Is the preservation of life in all its forms, whether it's human, whether it's animal, whether it's plant life, and everything else around us. Who who doesn't want that? You know, just yeah. you know who who would wouldn't want that? That that's literally what all this is for. You know, it's not to buy private islands. You know, it's it's not to do things, things of that sort, you know, and that's why I think what ends up happening, you know, to your point, there is no barriers, you know, to working with with uh, the Department of Defense and similar agencies. What you're striving for is looking for people that are matching the mission, because then you, you'll know they'll braid every cable inside their technology, that they'll go one and above and you will have the best and finest representation of that technology that can exist in 2022. Uh, you know, that's, that's what you're constantly, you know, should be seeking. You know, I can tell the difference when I have vendors, you know, showing up that are part of the firmament of our company, the ones that really care about what they're doing versus the ones that, that, you know, are, you know, don't really care beyond just dotting, you know, T's and, and or I'm sorry, yeah, dotting uh, I's and, and crossing T's, um, right. you know, the ones that go above and beyond. I mean, I was surprised. I mean, big company just, you know, before... You know, getting on this, you know, I, I wanted to um, audit a cybersecurity system that we were doing. And I just asked, hey, you know, show me, you know, some videos and things like that. And I'll, you know, work on these consoles myself and try to figure out on their own. And they sent a customer success person that worked double, double time to show me every button, how everything worked. And I'm like, I'm very impressed. You know, here I am, a relatively small SMB. And you're spending all this time, you know, you know, from a customer success executive showing me this, that instead of just throwing, you know, random thing in front of me, you actually care that much, even though I practically do nothing for your, your bottom line. You can, 
those are the organizations that you you want to be part of your growth, you know, over, over time. It's the ones that want to be there. I mean, you can tell that, right? Even when we mentor, you know, children or even, you know, you know, when we talked about these organizations, you can tell the people that want to be there. And that's why you're there. You know, it's not going to be everybody, you know, un unfortunately. But, you know, our, our job is to, you know, either coax or coach them into the places where they belong in some ways. And then maybe they'll find, you know, higher levels of satisfaction. But the most important thing we can do is put people in the right place. Again, we're not talking about AI because all that is, is, is an artificial construct that takes the things that we're deciding. So when you think about resource allocation of an AI taking us as subject matter experts and putting us in, in, in jobs where we can thrive, maybe one day I'll be able to help with that. Hey, did you consider you should be in this part of the agency and not in that part? Because if I right. look at all the stuff that you've done in the past and what you want to do and the educational opportunities that you're seeking and the certifications that you're going at, you actually would adore you know, th this particular function instead of the one that you're in. We don't know this stuff. We accidentally sometimes find ourselves in the place that we are in the organization and it takes us a while. You know, right. why not have a helping hand uh, with that? So I, I tend to be more trusting of these things. And of course, these things are way too early. You know, it's really hard for me to, you know, close my eyes and think that an AI can properly you know, look through hundreds of thousands or millions, if not tens of millions of resumes to find the right person for a particular job, you know, because we're more than, than just a piece of paper, you know, right. those, are, those are still early. What's next for Prion on the technology landscape? Can you share anything um, in terms of like, you know, so we've talked about how like technology at the rapid pace, it moves like almost it's almost as if what happens today is almost irrelevant to tomorrow. So like, what, what are you chasing right now from a technology perspective for Prion? I think the biggest thing that we realize is so much tribal knowledge is just trapped in static resources, right? The, these organizations that you're all a part of, they're not one year old, right? In the case of the Marines, they're older than the country, right? <laughs> I mean, these are things that are, you know, 100, 200, 300 years old in some ways, almost 300 years, right? 275, is it this year? And the Marines just had a birthday, by the way. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, it's always in November. <laughs> I think they're 275 uh, this year. So, um, so that means 275 years of tribal knowledge and documents and resources and things of that sort. So they're there. You're, you're talking about static documents and audio and, and, and um, you know, vintage footage and, and architectural drawings and schematics and, and all sorts of technical resources. They're there that, that have run these organizations for decades, if not longer. And so knowing that we're starting with, with that treasure trove that has never been, um, you know, previously processed and turned interactive. You know, Mike asked a question previously, like, hey, you know, give me a sense of some books that inspired you. Well, I have a backlog of a couple thousand books on my Kindle that I don't really have time to linearly read. But now I have an AI that can read it in the blink of an eye. And now because I was curious about these books by these different authors and things like that, I can start talking to them. So the former head of lessons learned at CIA, you know, wrote this uh, uh, wrote this uh, uh, book, I think, on the uh, culture and, and the intelligence uh, community. 
and and um, I was talking to another officer, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, I have that book, you know, on my bookshelf. It's still in in uh, plastic wrap. I never had a chance to read it." I'm like, "Well, look, the AI has read it, so just start talking to the AI about it." So now, think about the fact that we can make you know um, um, uh, a doppelganger, if you will, or a representation of us on a pedestal that would would be, all right, Igor hasn't had a chance to read these 2000 books. So we're gonna make this, this, this uh, other Igor that has read these 2000 things and I'm gonna be working in tandem, right? It's my co-pilot, right? And, and now it can, it can answer the things that I was curious about that I couldn't ever achieve at a human scale. It's just not, not enough time for me to do that. And by the way, not 2000 books, maybe 20,000 books, Maybe not that, maybe the entire Library of Congress. Oh, nope, not that, but I want all the libraries of every nation on earth that expose that and every research paper for everything, right? And all the stuff that I have access to in, in my organization all blended together. And me, as a human being, what can an AI not do? Well, it can't do you know, non-obvious object association, taking intuitive leaps, creativity, and things like that. I can do that. What can a machine do? It can read all these things, right? At a scale that I can't do, but working in tandem with it as a tool, it, it turns into something better. So that's what we're envisioning is something that is eventually going to be able to take the sum total of all knowledge that organizations have and give it to different subject matter experts so that they can not only get accurate answers, but also get thorough answers and not just thorough answers, but also at scale, so that now we have a new knowledge fabric in these organizations, right? And so now if we have these digital twins of ours, now they can be organized in a similar way that we organize our human systems, right? And so what does that mean? It means the same chain of command that, that Mike, you may operate in has a similar parallel chain of command of these synthetic representations of those same people that have access to your email and your documents and all the things that you would have read. And so if Bonnie sends an email and you're not available as, as, a, as a, a carbon-based life form, your digital twin actually answers that based on all the knowledge that you have access to and that you've allowed your thing to release to the world, right? Or it may say, no, this is a very sensitive request that she has. I'm going to take a first pass at answering it, but I'm going to bring it to you, Mike, and then you're going to green light it or edit it, and then it's going to go to her. I, I, I think email is not human scale. You know, we get too much. It was all cute when we all, all first got our, our first email addresses maybe 20 years ago, and we were really excited to get email and stuff like that. Now we can't think of it as, as a, a rational communications tool. What it, we have to think about it as, as, as a database. People are writing entries into a personal database of yours. You can't possibly process everything that's in there. So that thing needs to be ingested as well and be used as one of a myriad of data sources to build that twin of yours, right? That's, that's the only hope that we have. And the reason why we as a nation have to crack these, these uh, nuts open first is because while we don't lead in terms of the raw number of personnel, what we can lead is innovation and, and by making every American in every walk of life 10 times more effective. That's the, that's the, that's the shtick that we have. That's the, that's a superpower that we have uh, here. 
you know, where we, sure, we build certain rational, you know, uh, systems that govern these organizations. But the fact is, you know, unlike many other uh, nation states, we do allow disruption. We right. think we don't because they have more hard on ourselves because we're staring at ourselves in the mirror and we want things to move even faster. But the reason why this nation even exists is the fact from its very founding, you know, uh, you had individuals that were adapting. And by the way, here's their genius. Their genius was this. And, th and that's why I think all you know, we're going to do okay. We're going to do okay. We're going to make it to 300 years, which is when the Chinese start thinking of us as a civilization, not as an experiment anymore once we hit 300 years and here's and here's why the founding fathers created a document even though we can all admit hey look you know white males boom writing a piece of paper to benefit themselves landowners blah 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 i'll make sure but why did they make that document to be amended then it's because they trusted their children and their grandchildren to adapt to the situations that the nations would face 100, 200, 300 years in the future. That's why they made it that way. They didn't come in as autocrats saying, boom, here's our fixed worldview of the way that, that uh, this nation is going to govern itself. All the leaders that you have, the best and, and brightest that you've ever you know, worked with have come in and said, hey, here's how we're gonna do things, but let's improve it over time. I wanna hear from the whole organization, bottom up, you know, if we can do this even better. And the whole institution essentially adapted itself uh, over time. That's why, again, I'm, I'm, you know, fairly optimistic because it's in our bones to adapt. You know, that's how the whole thing started. And you know, people forget. Well, um, people forget. You know that it was designed yeah. to change. So, Mike, what'd you learn today? <laughs> My mind's been blown. Uh, I it, learned a lot. Is it? Yeah, okay. it's been a fantastic discussion. Fantastic discussion. I appreciate that. Like, uh, like I said, the the biggest thing for us, we're enthralled, you know, working on knowledge systems that can't do anything without participation and brilliance and the talents of the people that that have that institutional knowledge. What we are trying to do is remove that friction and just increase the impact of the people that know things in these organizations so they can they can find each other and they can find the solutions that they need in order to spend more time being humans. I don't want them to waste six hours looking for something. I want them to spend six hours collaborating with teams and improving uh, improving things and getting you know what they need out of these systems in in uh, in one second. so that's that's the biggest bliss that I have. And a lot of the people that are even getting attracted here at times are coming from consumer AI brands. But you know what? They've witnessed what we as a people experience over the last two, three years. They're seeing wars. They're seeing economic issues and climate change. They're seeing, you know, pandemics. And they're like, well, do I really want to spend my life doing ads? You know, do I really want to spend my life doing recommendation engines for videos? You know, purpose. And yeah, they're they're actually the stars are aligning where where some of your best and brightest practitioners in the AI field are are looking at the consumer stuff and saying, hey, how do I help you know more serious pursuits, the pharmaceutical plants, the semiconductor plants, the agencies, the government institutions that are safeguarding our way of life, the sanitation department that's that's out there working on our behalf every day, our first responders and our hospital systems and things of that sort. So I think playtime is over for the AI industry.
You know, they're mm-hmm. after everything that they've seen that that all of you have been working on, you know, with with uh, you know, that are purpose-driven and, and mission-oriented, you know, since the inception of your organizations, they're putting their 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 colored blocks down and they're and they're coming to these more serious pursuits now, which is good, right? In the beginning, when you had things like Project Maven, you have some folks like, well, why should we be working on that? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, why do we work on on things like you know visual recognition? But then they they see the negatives of it, which is what they were talking about. But they're like, oh, now we have wars and certain social disruptions, and there's positives for that technology as well. These are more complicated things. It's it's too easy to paint them as good or bad in some ways, and it's it's more rational to paint it. It depends on the on on the way that you're going to use it. What you have to do is make trusting you know, have trusting relationships between, you know, the folks that are inventing these technologies and the people that are deploying these technologies, right? And I tend to, by default, you know, no matter what people um, experience on the outside, I have yet to meet an, you know, unethical person that, you know, at times you'd see these films and books and depictions of all of us in these agencies and organizations and the they try to paint them a certain way and it's like yeah but i've never seen anybody misuse any of this stuff i just haven't i've always seen people like think about the checks and balances and the risks of certain things so it may be easy for you to watch a film thinking that you know people are doing all sorts of crazy things with with drones and things like that but that's not what's happened in real life no very good well it's been absolutely awesome to say i can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us talking i feel like we went everywhere from ai to a little <laughs> bit of philosophy and some cultural dynamics and stuff like that so very much appreciate you and your time and over to you nicole yeah that was that was an amazing conversation Igor. thank you and i mean I, i'm pretty sure i can speak for everybody listening to the podcast that that was helpful in so many different ways and honestly, I heard some new analogies in there too that I hadn't heard before. But thank you for sharing all that yeah. with us. And always thank you, Bonnie and Mike, for helping kind of bring those pieces together and asking the relevant questions. And to everyone on our podcast, uh, I hope to see you guys all again in the next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today. Thanks for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today.